Welcome to this special bonus edition of Just Cases. James Patterson here, the producer of the show. This is a follow-up to episode four, They Don't Teach You This at Law School. The Victorian state government has announced it will set up a safe injecting room in a first for the state. Located in the inner Melbourne suburb of Richmond, it will be only the second to operate in Australia. One in Sydney's King's Cross was established in 2001. Now, the announcement comes in response to a growing heroin problem in Victoria. The ABC reports that the number of Victorians dying from overdoses has doubled in the last five years. And in the Richmond area alone, within a small four-block radius, 34 people died from overdoses in a single year. In this bonus episode, Melissa talks with Dr Kate Sear about how safe injecting rooms and needle exchanges actually work. How can they be legal while drugs are illegal? This extra audio was recorded just before the Victorian government's announcement, and if you haven't listened to episode four of Just Cases, there's a few things about the case that are mentioned, so it might be worth going back and having a listen to episode four. They don't teach you this at law school. For now, here's Melissa Caston in conversation with Kate Sear. Kate, I mentioned to you about um, safe injecting um, places, and, and you've mentioned exchange of needles. Can mm. you explain a little bit more about what how that actually works? Yeah, it's 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 kind of complicated. Mm. There's a complicated legal um, exception that allows for needle exchanges to open. So maybe I'll just explain first what a needle exchange is. Please do. Um, it, it's also sometimes called a needle and syringe program. Mm. Those two terms are often used interchangeably. Um, so a needle and syringe program is like a little facility. It might be a fixed facility like within a community health centre mm. or a mobile site, a little van that mm. moves out um, among the community where people can go and get access to clean needles and syringes and other injecting equipment. And under a series of exceptions that operate right around the country, those needle and syringe programs are lawful, but there's a very important way in which they're lawful. So the way they work is this, that if I work at a needle and syringe program, I am allowed to give you mm. a clean needle and syringe mm. if you turn up and, and mm -hmm. request one. I am immune from prosecution. But if you then take that needle away and want to take it off and give it to somebody else that you encounter or somebody right. you know, that is... Of course, because I'm not authorised. That is illegal. Right. So I'm an authorised person, mm. but you're not. Mm. And that's where the chain breaks, if you like. And, yeah. and so that's um, the sort of thing that might have happened in Cow's case, mm. where Cow was able to get a clean needle and syringe, say, from a needle and syringe program, but then he wasn't allowed to pass it mm. on to Sutton. And my colleagues and I have been very interested in that legislation and mm. how it works and why it exists in the way it does. And so in the last couple of years, a couple of colleagues and I, Kari Lancaster and Carla Trelaw, we decided to do some research on this and, and look into the origins of this prohibition mm. on peer distribution mm. and the establishment of needle and syringe programs. And so we went back and looked at parliamentary debates from the 1980s, which was a really fascinating exercise. <laughs> you know, very few people could find that fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, that's the law dork in me. You know um, <laughs> But we were interested in seeing what it was that politicians back in the, in the day had mm. to say. And um, we wrote an article about this for mm. the International Journal of Drug Policy. So what did you find out about what politicians were thinking when they drafted those laws or whoever drafted those laws, when those laws were passed? What, what were they thinking of when they made this distinction between a kind of authorised person who could distribute needles 
and the unauthorised or prohibited form of distribution. Yeah. Well, what we found was that in those debates, politicians repeatedly made assumptions mm. and and claims about people who use drugs and their motivations, mm. and they were characterised as irresponsible and irrational and chaotic. But do you think sometimes people who are using drugs in those circumstances are irresponsible and chaotic? Um, yes and no. I think... What we know from research is that people who use drugs are a very diverse population. Of course. And so making any kind of generalising statements or any stereotypical claims mm. about them and about how responsible or irresponsible they are um, is really problematic, mm. like any sector of the population. Look, I guess if you're looking for a clean needle, that's not a chaotic decision. That's quite a rational decision. Yes. Yeah, and it's, one it's that's... self-protective. Exactly. One that's very sensible, actually, and... Mm. Um, an important public health measure. But what we saw back in those parliamentary debates was that politicians thought it would be very risky to mm. put clean needles and syringes into the hands of people who use drugs. And one of the people who had something to say about this was a very famous Australian politician, the Reverend Fred Nile. Oh, well, he's famous for saying lots of things. <laughs> he is. I might tell you what he said, <clears throat> because this is a good example, I think, of some of the the logic that underpins these laws. Mm. So he was talking here about the idea that needle and syringe programs should be allowed to be established and that people could be trusted to get those needles and to use them and to exchange them. And this is what he said. The legislation before the House assumes that such people will be responsible enough to go to Bondi Beach or somewhere else and inject their heroin with a clean needle to get high or whatever the result is from using the heroin. Obviously, such a person will not be rational or sensible at that point. It is supposed that that person will put the dirty needle in a little plastic bag, look for a pharmacy, and then exchange the dirty one for a clean one. If the person involved were that responsible, he or she would not be using heroin in the first place. The government seems to adopt the view that that is a normal behaviour pattern and that such a person will respond in the same way as rational people. And so Reverend Fred Nile was one of those politicians who was clearly opposed to letting people have access to clean needles and syringes at all, let alone to this idea that I've been talking about mm. where we would let people collect clean needles and mm. syringes and give mm. them to, to others. Mm. And in that sense, his view was very much counter to public health, mm. fundamental principles of harm, what we call mm. harm reduction. Mm. And based in a lot of assumptions about what the behaviour is of people when they're using drugs. Exactly. Questionable whether he knows what people's behaviour is yes. when they're using drugs. Yeah. Anyway, the result of that debate was, as I said, in New South Wales, needle and syringe programs were eventually established. Right. They were established all across the country, but embedded within them was this important exception mm. that the authorised person could give the needles to say, I could give them to you, but you couldn't pass them on any further. And those laws have stayed on the books across the country in the decades since. So you've pointed out to us the distinction between this kind of authorised um, exchange of or, you know, delivery of a clean needle and the unauthorised exchange of a clean needle. What did the judge in Cow's case have to say about that? Uh, the judge, acting Judge Ford, seemed to recognise that it might be quite an artificial distinction and some of these kinds of distinctions that operate in the drugs field are a bit uh, artificial. So in his charge to the jury, this is what he said... He said, so you may well ask, what is the real distinction or difference, if there is one, between a person at a needle exchange who hands out a needle and a person such as the accused in this case, who, being a user himself, has a needle and hands one on to a person who is drug dependent, 
such as the deceased. And acting Judge Ford just left that there for the jury to contemplate. Mm-hmm. And obviously the jury didn't feel that it was an artificial distinction, but... Or they didn't pick up on, you know, what he put to them, What he was you know, saying, Because he kind yes. of left it hang, hanging there at what his conclusion was. I mean, we, we can read that quote and see that what he's saying is, I think this is a distinction without a difference. But it's yes. questionable whether a jury of 12 average people is going to actually hear the subtlety in what he's getting at. Well, it will be very interesting to see what the politicians do with this, given that we've moved on a long way from the time of Cow's case and understanding what the ramifications of these kinds of laws can be and what they mean, given we've now got a lot more evidence about, you know, what what the impacts are and what the safeguards can be too. Exactly. And what's fascinating to me, not that I think that this should be determinative, but there's actually huge public support for a number of these um, services now. So in Victoria right now, there's a very big debate about whether we should have a safe or, sorry, supervised injecting facility in North Richmond or Mm. the Richmond area, because that is an area of the state that has a very high number of overdose deaths. And there's overwhelming public support for that, um, for such a service to be Mm. uh, instated. There was recently an inquiry in Victoria into this just this question. Um, Submissions were called for. Most submissions to that inquiry supported such a facility Mm. and yet the government has not come out uh, either way or has in fact been uh, been a bit um, sat on the fence a little Mm. bit about whether they would establish such a facility. But uh, as I said, I I think there's um, clear evidence that those facilities work and I hope that we will get one in Victoria and elsewhere soon.